on 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton, and it is uh, just an absolute privilege to be having a chat via the wonders of Zoom to the author of the new book. It's an autobiography, Racing on Empty. Iona Rossley joins us. G'day, Iona. Yes, hello. I, I'd love to say good day. It doesn't actually fit into <laughs> my British. I'm practicing that one, but yes. That, that's all right. We, 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 we will let you get there slowly. That's fine. No problems at all. Um, Iona, I'm so looking forward to telling your story, uh, or more importantly, hearing your story, getting letting the chance for everybody else to hear it, because um, it is truly, truly fascinating. Um, let's sort of start with this element, and I know it's part of what your book is and, and the way it's sort of positioned as well, is this this need for speed, as it were, in your world, and it, it happens in a whole lot of different spaces. Can you take us back to when you were a kid? It was being fast and being around a big part of what your world was? I think that the speed initially came from riding horses and I wanted to always ride the wildest, fastest thing that would try and buck you off all the time. I think it was living in that speed brings a sense of fear and I like that fear. Um, and I like taking a risk and it just made me feel alive. And yeah, I think, and definitely more of a tomboy than um, a Barbie doll kind of girl, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair, enough, fair enough too. Uh, there's, there's a couple of key moments that we're going to go through in your life. Um, uh, we're going to cover off today. And obviously we can't do it all. That's why you put out a book. Uh, but we're going to, we're going to touch off on some of those. Uh, the, the first is that, um, and we want to just sort of cover this off, that you, you started off in your life, um, in in a religious context of sorts. Can you tell us a little bit about what was that religious context for you? Yeah, so I'm the eldest of four girls. Um, my poor father wanted a boy and he kept trying and then he gave up after the fourth one. Um, Geraldine should have been Gerald. She's a Geraldine. Um, I actually got sent to boarding school when I was 11. So it was a convent school for young ladies in the Brecon Beacons, which is in the middle of nowhere in South Wales. <laughs> and it was a fairly, run by Irish nuns. Um, it was fairly strict, uh, like really strict. We didn't really know what was going on in the outside world. Um, I didn't have, I would say I didn't have any connection with God then because it was just so, uh, regimented and ri the rituals, the, the traditions, getting up early in the morning and um, going to mass. And my favourite thing was pretending to faint. Um, and I'd sit at the end of the pew and just roll over into the middle of the aisle and they drag me out. Um, but it was the only way I could get out of it. I, I just really had no, I think I believe God existed, but as far as I was concerned in that time in the convent school, he wasn't a loving God. He was more judgmental. And yeah. I'd prefer just to not to be involved in any of that. So, yeah. So very much um, sort of transactional rather than relational in any yes. sense. Yeah. yeah. Kind of. uh, we are going to leave that part of the story there, but we're going to come back to it. And I wanted to note it because it's, it's clearly something that we need to connect back later in your story. Uh, as you went on, you, you discovered that uh, you were very, very good at sports. As you said, you, you know, um, horse riding was a big part and then it became skiing was a really key one. How, how did skiing become a big part of your world? Well, I, I went on a, a one-week ski trip when I was 11 with the school, and then they built um, this artificial ski slope practically in our backyard in South Wales. We lived near Pontypool, 
And um, I, I just, I loved it. I go, I mean, I, I would just go straight to the top and just come like straight down. I absolutely just enjoyed every single minute of it. And skiing on an artificial slope is so much harder than on real snow. So when I wasn't in boarding school, in the holidays, I just lived and breathed dry ski slope. And believe it or not, <laughs> there was a Welsh uh, skiing team. And I was on the junior team for that. So we did slalom and giant slalom on the slope. And that was the start of my skiing. It just, I just got so wrapped up in that. It was my all. I just, I lived and breathed skiing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now that went from, you know, the, the fun of being the, the, the kid and that early teenager into it to actually something that was, you really pursued in a big way. Could you take us forward more to the point that, you know, you were considered one of the absolute best? Well, I, it, was, it was a bit of a fluky thing, really. I ended up being a ski instructor and then I got promoted to chief ski instructor. And some of my um, the ski instructors who worked for me wanted to do uh, speed skiing. And I used to watch these speed skiers going down saying, they're mad. What on earth is the point of going down at a hundred, actually 200 kilometers an hour? And it was like, the, the sound was like an aircraft as they take off and you get that sound and they whiz down. I saw some horrendous falls. I, I, we used to work in Les Arcs, which is um, uh, in France and Les Arcs 2000 had one of the only speed skiing tracks in the world called uh, Kilimanjaro Lance, which is called in England a flying kilometer. Right. And, um, and what makes a, a speed skiing track versus a, a mountain down? I mean, you know, here in Australia, it, we don't quite understand as well. Yeah, it literally is straight. It's like okay. a 45 degree. It's just straight down. Wow. Um, and they're normally a kilometre, if not slightly longer. Um, and the we as ski instructors, being professional skiers, were allowed to go a quarter of the way up. And they all wanted to go. And I was like, not a good idea. I can't see the point of going straight down in a straight line. Um, but I said, well, you know, I don't want to be a chicken. I was chief ski instructor. So we all arranged to meet. We got the helmet skis. I got to the top to find out I was the only person there. So they they actually, it was just one big ploy. And I was so scared. And the guy there was very sweet. He was on the, one of the marshals. He was on a walkie-talkie. And he said, do you know, you can walk down. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not walking down. He said, that's the only way. Either you walk down or you ski down. So he, he tried to show me about the egg position when you go into a little tight little ball. And he said, and I said, well, what happens if you fall? And he was like, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> now I'm really panicking. So I just, I, I was scared. I have to admit, I'm, you know, I take risks, but I've seen what had happened to speed skiers. Uh, but I jumped my skis around, which are two foot long, eight feet, and um, I did my first run. And it was it's like jumping out of a block of flats, which I obviously don't do that, but it felt like that. Um, and I was like, I got to the bottom. I actually couldn't breathe. I don't think I breathed on the way down. Um, when I got to the bottom, I was just, I'd stopped shaking, obviously, but... I, I was just like, wow, that is this, the most amazing feeling. And they're all there, my lovely friends who, you know, thought that, yeah, I, yeah. I, it set me up, who probably hoping I was going to fall. 
Um, and um, you know, I love them very dearly. <laughs> um, they they were shocked because I took my helmet off and I was like, wow. And they were like, oh, she's going to faint. She's going to pass out. I said, okay, who's who wants to join me for the next run? And they were all like, what? <laughs> they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And I, I think on my first run, I did 80, around 86 kilometers and out kilometers and out miles per hour. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And that was the, the trigger for my skiing. I think I've been skiing, I've been skiing since I was 11, but that was like the highlight for me, a turning point of saying, no, this is really what I want to do. I want to be a speed skier. Mm. Um, and it was just from from someone, you know, from a, a group playing a prank on me. And I thought, no, nah, you know, I was very competitive anyway, always have been since I was 11 years old to find that I could have a, my identity always came from my sports. And I just felt that this was not just my identity, but something I could be really good at. Yeah. We're going to hear more with Iona Rossley in just a couple of moments' time, uh, author of this new book. It's her autobiography, Racing on Empty. Uh, and we're going to find out a bit more about what happened as she became a champion speed skier and then also a tragedy that occurred around that. That's on the way next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and the author of this new autobiography, Racing on Empty, Iona Rossley is joining me. And we've been hearing already about how she uh, grew up in Wales and then found this love of skiing and now had just understood, well, this thing of speed skiing uh, set up by a prank by her friends to do it. And then she loved it and fell in love with that. Uh, I'm guessing, uh, Iona, pretty soon you, you you went from just doing a quarter of the the slope to the whole slope uh the entire kilometer down um and you ended up becoming one of the best in the world didn't you how, how long did it take you to actually be one of the best i there, there are actually not many speed skiing races because there's not many tracks in the world um i i think it was the following year 1987 um i became british overseas champion um and that was my first um knocking on my top speed of about 160 kilometers an hour which is a hundred miles an hour yeah um so that then um shortly after that i got sponsored by smirnoff vodka and alfa romeo cars and no i didn't drink and drive and actually (laughs) i didn't even like vodka (laughs) i didn't tell them that at the time but they were a great sponsor, just amazing sponsor. They had their own speed skiing team called the Smirnoff Speed Skiing Team. So I was on that. Um, they paid for me to fly to New Zealand. Um, and I became, uh, actually did ended up in Dunedin Hospital as I did have a bit of a bad accident on the first um, practice runs. Um, but I managed to get to, to the race with a hairline fracture in one of my legs. Um, but yeah, I, I won the um, New Zealand's 1986 um, speed skiing championship there. Um, and then everything went, my, I, my career in speed skiing was fairly short, um, but I think most speed skiers do, you know, it doesn't, yeah, it takes it out of you. There are some amazing guys who are doing, at the moment, 240 
kilometers an hour. So my fastest speed was 160, which now, I don't know how many years later was the yeah. long time. Um, it's nothing, it's nothing. But when you go over 160, you can fit, it's, your, your skis actually don't even touch the ground. You're actually high, it's almost like hydrofoiling across the surface. So it's very much, they put it down to almost like free falling out of a plane. Yeah. Um, it's the most amazing experience. So, you know, it, there's a lot of work involved in mind and, and, and um, keeping fit, negative resistance. It's a, it's a real mind game because one negative thought on the way down then that one negative thought will tense a muscle. And if your muscles tense, you will not be able to stay on your skis. Mm, and, mm. you know, yeah. So nerves of steel, but actually trained nerves of steel in that sense, that yeah. it's actually about training and, and, and relaxing those nerves in that yeah. sense too. Um, Iona, it actually ended up um, that your career and perhaps, you know, a big part of your life changed when you actually had a massive accident at, at your top speed. Could you tell us about that? Yes, so I was in the qualifier for the world um, championships and um, I had done the first day and every, what they do is they take a percentage of the fastest races. So if you're in the top 20%, then you can move up the track so you get faster and faster. So we were right at the top of this gully. I'd actually lost my voice that day and I didn't know why. My technician had got sick, so I didn't have my normal technician. Um, everything was probably going the wrong way, but I didn't feel that at the time. Um, so when I jumped my skis around, um, I started off and you, you immediately, you're, you're going so fast, so quickly. And all I remember is my right ski came off for no reason. I hadn't fallen. I was skiing on one ski on a 45 degree angle. And they all say, if, if that happens, you just relax and fall. Well, that is very difficult to do at that speed. So I did the opposite. I, being Irish, maybe, I don't know. I, I put my heel down. So I must have been traveling at 100 plus, I don't know, fast. I put my heel down and shattered my leg all the way totally up my leg. So it shattered into pieces, nine pieces. Um, and then on the way down, my other ski stayed on. It should have come off. So I traveled for oh, a kilometer. Um, it, it felt like I was in a tumble dryer. And on the way down, I just had this, I just knew that I'm, that's it. I'm dead. I'm finished. I'd seen other skiers fall in the same place and not survive. And I just really felt that was it. And I, I, I thought, I felt actually, I felt God's hand over it, even though I didn't know who God was. I also thought about my dog, who's going to look after him. I didn't think about my parents or anything. I just, I thought about God and I thought about my dog and it just went a bit blurry. And then all I remember is sitting, trying to sit up and I couldn't, I, I was actually amazed that I was actually even breathing. Um, your body goes into total lockdown. It just shuts down. And I, I remember just looking at my right leg and I won't go through all the details, but I just saw bone coming out of my boots and no let, it, like my, it, it's almost like my leg had gone. 
Um, and then I can't remember anything well, probably until the next day. Mm. Um, so I underwent an eight hour operation and they literally saved my right leg. They, I mean, they rebuilt it. It's definitely bionic now. So I ended up with a very long plate from my knee down to my ankle, 28 screws. Um, yeah, so yeah, they literally built my whole leg back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which was, and the doctors were amazing. But, you know, my life stopped. Everything I could do was sports. I couldn't really do anything else. My identity as I owner was my horse riding. I was also a windsurfing instructor, water skiing instructor, um, you know, obviously speed skiing, had my sponsors. That was, it was my life and I had everything. I had cars, money, you know, it, and it literally stopped and everything was taken away from me. But the strange thing was I had this amazing sense of peace. And if, you, if you'd asked me the day before what would have been the worst thing that could happen to me, it would have been this. Um, but it wasn't. It, it didn't. I, I, I just felt, one, I couldn't believe I had so many friends because when you're an athlete, well, this on my, for me anyway, I became so self-centred. It was all about me. Uh, I didn't really socialise that much. Um, so it was... Um, yeah, it, it was it was a very, uh, I'd say, awakening time just to realize that, you know, I, I struggled a little bit like, who am I now? Who am I? Yeah. 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 Um, I know as you, you, you then moved from that place and this, who am I? I, I believe that it still took you a, a while to start discovering who you were. Um, mm-hmm. What were those next steps? I know that actually this love of horse riding started coming back as well. Yes. And we also, well, I know because I've, I've done a bit of research that there was a, a faith aspect that eventually came through. Could you you take us through perhaps just firstly, I suppose, what was the, the next phase for you? What was the next thing that you started trying after everything's gone? You've got this sense of peace. What was the next thing you tried? Well, I actually ended up staying with my father for a while because it took oh, 18 months before I could even walk properly. And they told me I'd always limp. I'd never be able to do any sports again, finished. Um, and I just totally, in my, in my mind, said, no, I'm not even listening to that. Um, I, I will be doing sports, but I, you know, I just, just had to battle through. I, I, ha- I actually had the most amazing time in Cyprus meeting some amazing Christians who took me, my physiotherapist introduced me to a Bible group from we went on retreats and whatever. And I think it was the first time I felt that Jesus was about a relationship. Um, and I was like, wow, this is what's missing. Cause I always felt there was something missing. Um, and even when I won a race the next morning, I want to feel different, but I didn't really feel different because you know, winning and that all that stuff is very fleeting. So in this time in Cyprus, I was like, wow, me, it's, it's Jesus. I, I, this is what's missing. This is what I need. It's the person who created me. But <laughs> I'm, I am like a hamster on a wheel. And I was like, but, you know, he might not want me to do sports. So I think that's great. That's, maybe I'll come back to that later. Um, but I'll go back to the UK and I'll become a jockey because that's, that's what I, I, I wanted to get back into the limelight, back into competing. I was worried that Jesus would say, no, 
you're not doing that. So um, I went back, I, I tried out as a jockey, but I couldn't ride short stirrups because of my knee. Um, and then I ended up in the Middle East uh, working with public relations and I started back horse riding then. Um, and I went into, oh, we went into show jumping. Um, I was working at Rothmans Williams Renault Formula One team and public relations, which I loved. Um, and I started going into endurance racing, which is long distance racing. And that was my big love. I mean, I, I, and that's in, in the Middle East, that's the fast sport, you know, 160 kilometers on horseback in one day, but you canter and gallop through the desert. And you have like four or five, it's a bit like uh, uh, rally racing where you have pit stops. Yep. Um, so that was my next love, but I left, God behind. I was like, no, you know, I, I think he's, he doesn't really understand me. I, I think he'll, he might take what I love away from me. And I think my traditional values that I'd been taught in convent school were like, oh no, you know, regulations and rituals and tradition, he won't allow you to do things like that. Um, so that's why I left him in Cyprus, I suppose, is one way of looking at it. Uh, what I love about this is that uh, that might have been where Iona left Jesus, but Jesus didn't leave her. We're going to come back and find out a bit more of this story, um, including a bit more around this, the, the horses and uh, what ended up in her world to realize there was actually something more than sport, but she was still made for parts of what sport was all about. That's on the way next year on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9, The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. And uh, boy, it's been a privilege, hasn't it, so far to be able to chat to the author of this new book, her autobiography, Ra Racing on Empty. I think I've said running on empty a couple of times, but Racing on Empty is what it is called. Iona Rossley is my guest. And we've been hearing about the journey that she had of a love of skiing and horse riding. She ended up being a, uh, you know, an absolute champion speed skier, uh, had a huge accident, meant that she played in her legs, you know, wouldn't been told really never going to be able to do sport again. It does get back into some horse riding as well and some endurance racing in the Middle East is sort of where we picked it up there. Uh, and before we get back just to that, Iona, you did briefly mention a couple of minutes ago about the fact that you worked for an F1 team in the mm -hmm. Williams team, uh, which happened to have, um, you know, Damon Hill and, and Anton Senna, two of the most famous F1 drivers at the time. And your first race weekend, working with a team was actually the weekend when Anton Sinner lost his life racing. Um, what was that like, I suppose, from your perspective? Here you were, somebody who survived a serious accident where you thought you should have really died by all rights. Other people had died on that speed skiing slope. And yet here he did die. Did that bring anything up in you? How did you deal with that, I suppose? Um, what the initial because we were with him a couple of hours before um, where he was actually talking about the circuit and he wasn't happy about that bend that where he actually had that accident. Um, I think initially it was just shock because um, Roland Ratzenberger had died the day before, then it was Erzin Senna. And I was like, wow, what? Because it was my first race and I had 20 journalists with me who I was looking after. And they were all throwing questions at me at this. And, and I was like, you, you're running on shock, but you're running on just emotions. And I think it was about 
six weeks later, I actually couldn't stop crying. And I don't know why. why. And you, it's something deep down inside me about, you know, I, I was alive. I should have probably died where I fell on that speed skiing track. He was the most amazing, humble guy whose life had just been taken away like that. And I think the, the shock, I think just at time, you say time is a healer. I think the healing brings tears. And sometimes you don't always understand why you feel so hurt inside. And I, I think there was something very, that was actually my first time I started writing because I wanted to write the story of how it affected me. And every time I wrote it, I just couldn't stop crying. But I think it was me reliving bits of me, you know, with my skiing, plus seeing what happened with Earth and Santa um, and understanding just how just it was devastating, the whole thing. It was very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's then, you know, as we said, you sort of moved forward on and, and you ended up finding yourself racing endurance races in the mm. Middle East on horseback and um, I actually ended up getting quite to the top of another sport again. Could yeah. you you take us through what happened there? Yeah, so I ended up on the Irish, because my mother is Irish, and she um, well, she passed away, I promised to get my Irish um, uh, passport, which I did. And then I got onto the Irish um, equestrian team, and we did the World Equestrian Games, the World Championships, the European Championships. It was great. And we ended up at one point with, wow, 18 horses and I was racing every other weekend, France, Portugal, Germany, Ireland, England. And we relocated to France because it was easier. Um, so it was a full on opera- uh, racing operation. And, but when I moved to France, I met, met the most amazing Christian couple who also had horses. They weren't com- uh, competitive, but we just bonded and related over the horses. But they lived and breathed Jesus. They talked like he was there all the time, like the dining room table and when they were riding. When they, and I, I would be like, whoa, you know. And they really helped me. I did the Alpha course with them in, the, in their living room. Um, they really helped me understand what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus and that he's very, very much alive. So for three years, I ended up, with them they just literally took me under their wings and looked after me which was lovely but i was still competing really competitive um number one irish horse um i was always chosen in the top six riders to to you know to go to all the big events um and we just i don't know how long maybe i think it was 10 years eight to 10 years right racing then um when you know, and in that time, I was um, taking communion. I was doing Bible study, praying. Jesus was a really important part of my life. Um, but it was, I just, I felt that, that there was so much more, but I didn't know what it was. So I was praying, I want more, I want more of what you have. And um, I didn't realize that my racing was so so obsessive to me it, it because it's always been with me I didn't realize I've become so obsessive um then he stepped in and took away what was really important to me so I was qualifying in Portugal for a very big race um, I had no doubts in my mind that I would not qualify 
my horse got really sick for no reason the day before the race had it like an like an epileptic fit type thing for no reason and I totally lost it and I lost it with God because I I felt that he had just walked away from me he knew how important it was that I qualify for the world equestrian games in America and it was that was a no-go it was like it was taken away from me the horse was fine she's one of my best horses she it, it, but it, it really threw me. It, it was like somebody had died in our family. I felt like someone had come with a knife and gutted me and taken away something so important. And I felt like I really failed and I couldn't quite cope with that. So I was so angry at God and my Christian friends, they came to the house farm when I, when I got back from Portugal and I, you know, so let's pray. I said, do you know what? I don't want to pray. <laughs> I don't want to go there. He's just walked away and left me. What does he expect me to do? And it was like, um, I, I, I think I was treating Jesus a bit like an app on a phone. You know, you can dial in and have him when you want. And Jesus definitely doesn't work like that. So uh, it was very, oh, I, I remember just lying awake at night, that night, looking at the scene and saying, I don't understand why you did this to me. I really don't understand. I hurt all over I remember walking downstairs into the kitchen that morning and I I'd felt, I just didn't know who I was anymore. I just felt like a nobody. I felt like I'd failed. Um, and I saw my Bible and I saw my do list on the, on the table. And as I walked in the kitchen, it was like Jesus has suddenly appeared in the kitchen. And I had this overwhelming sense that he was in the room. And I, it was like a, a real light bulb moment. And people will say light bulb moments, but it was just like so overwhelming. I just fell onto my knees and started crying. And I was like, he had never, ever abandoned me. I'd actually left him. I'd left him for, my, for me, for my sports, for my racing. And I just felt he just put his arms around me. And I, in that moment, I just realized I didn't have to try and be somebody I wasn't. And it allowed me, it just felt like this weight of burden of competing on my shoulders had been just lifted totally off. And I felt such a release, such a sense of freedom. And I just felt I was just loved so much by God and yet I, yes I could carry on doing the sports if I wanted and but I had a totally different perspective now and when people say that that you know we we all meet Jesus in different yeah you know, some people it's like a, over weeks months years or when they're young um for me I thought I was a Christian but I wasn't because I really didn't have to have a relationship with Jesus you've just got to let go and I think when I said, okay, I don't want to live this life anymore without you controlling it. So I handed that morning, I just said, right, you can have everything. And I think when you do that, and I do it on a daily basis, because you know what humans are like, they always try and grab their lives back. No, you're not doing it fast enough. I want it. So I do it on a daily basis. But when I did it that time, I, I felt God say, I'll take control of everything, Kiana just follow me. And I always remember the, the Jeremiah verse saying, I know the plans I have for you. Mm -hmm. I know he had the plans for me and he has. And, you know, my life has been so much better. I mean, 
before it's just like it's a roller coaster ride and I still you know I still ride I still do lots of probably things and I've just turned 60 so people go well you know I'm backing my own horses I do my weight training I'm learning the guitar I'm painting sculpturing and you know I love my keep fit and you know I would compete tomorrow but I don't feel that that's what God wants me to do and I'm happy not to I compete now in other ways um you know people think that when you hand your life to Jesus, and this is what I was always worried about you hand your life to Jesus and you, he, you, he strips you of your identity but he's the one that gave us our personality he gave us amazing gifts and talents and since that day I've actually blossomed in so many different areas that I never ever thought I would be able to do but he gives you this power because you know that you're under his protection and love and it's not just about this life it's about the eternal life which is going to go on for billions and billions of years um yeah so you know he took away what was imp- what was important to me then but gave me so much more back um and it wasn't long two years I actually fizzled out I remember calling my poor husband who couldn't understand I called from the race site screaming and crying two days later I called him to say that I wanted to go and study biblical studies in America doing an online course and he just went all quiet and he said I'm really worried about you Iona he was in the Middle East and um, he said maybe you should just think about this because he didn't know about you know the, what I didn't want to explain on the phone what had happened we saw each other face to face a couple of weeks afterwards um, it yeah I mean God can, he can totally in one second can change your life and yeah. he did for me uh, totally so I, I know interestingly I was going to ask just something very similar to what you said just a, a couple of moments ago around this idea that you were fearful of if you really came to Jesus and, and gave him your life, then he would take things away from you. Um, and in some senses, things were taken away from you. Um, and my sense is, am I putting words in your mouth if I was to describe it like rather than a, a taking away and a stripping out of who you were, there was actually by taking some of the things that you were doing away, there was a revelation of the real you, more, more crystallized yeah. understanding of it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely, because I think we we tend to latch on to human stuff like sports and competing and treat them like an idol, and we're born to worship, um, but we tend to worship the, the wrong thing. So I was worshipping my sport. I was worshipping, and, and Jesus was still important where I should have been worshipping him. So in that the worship comes from just your passion and your love and where your heart is. And my heart was always with the sports. But when I met Jesus, and it was like meeting Jesus face to face, I suppose, it, it, it was, I realized that, wow, you know, he is, he's real. He's real, you know, and I'm thinking, this is amazing. And it, it just made I didn't want to spend eight hours a day on horseback to win a 160 kilometer race for no reason. I I thought, what's the point? (laughs) So I think my perspective changed that my identity is a a child of God and he has the most amazing plan 
for me. And he did. You know, if you read the book, he, the the advent, I mean, ending ending up working with the United Nations, um, working with uh, the Global Sustainability Network, helping people. But I'm still doing my sports. I'm still competitive. But he opened doors that I'm like, wow, it's just so amazing. And he, he uses those gifts and talents and he gives you so much more. But it's very difficult. We, but us as humans, we like saying, no, you know, he doesn't act fast enough. I, I want, I want, I want to be something different. But God already knows exactly where, what you should be doing and the path he's already planned for you. Yeah. I'm just going to pause now and give you the care line number because maybe you've been listening to Anna's story and there's something that's just been ringing inside. Maybe you're a sports person and it's something like that. Maybe it's just you've been pushing into life and trying to find something of value and realizing it's not quite there. And and there's something about this, Jesus, that Iona's talking about that you want to connect in with and ask more questions or just talk with someone or even pray with someone about that just to help you in where you're going right now. So if that's something you're feeling inside and something's moving in you, uh, would I encourage you to just call our care line now, the number 9583 double two seven three or if you use the uh, number pad on your phone that's nine five eight three care nine five eight three care there's people there right now to just chat to you as uh, you go through and maybe answer any of your questions iona uh, i you know we've taken up so much of your time already and i reckon we could just talk for hours so thank you so much for being so willing to share your story and we certainly wish you all the best uh, with the impact of this book racing on empty as well thank you so much for your time Thank you so much, Clayton. Thank you. Iona Rossley, uh, my guest here on 89.9 The Light.